Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hi, I'm Sif Hyder, the founder of Array. I'm a wellness entrepreneur and digital creator, and this is my show, The Dream Bigger Podcast. Listen, I love dreaming big, but you know what I love more? Actually having the resources to make those big dreams happen. And hey, dreams can sometimes be private jets, but other times they can look a little something like having the best skin of your damn life or starting a successful business or delving into spirituality. So on this podcast, I chat with experts and thought leaders from different fields about their tips and tricks on doing exactly that. So let's get right into it. Hey guys, welcome back to the show. If you're new here and haven't tuned in, I am your host Sif. I'm the founder of Array and I'm so excited that you've tuned in. For people who've been here before, so stoked to have you. And I have a really, really great episode this week with Ariel Laurie, who many of you probably have already heard her podcast, The Blonde Files Podcast, or follow her on Instagram. She is an incredible wellness influencer and has just always been this like open book, so transparent, so, so cool. So today's episode is all about her recovery from addiction, which she was, you know, in that world for 10 years. She talks all about her whole journey, her low point, how she recovered and how she got into the world of wellness. And I love her because she's so transparent from everything about her journey to then, you know, her journey with wellness and now with some plastic surgery as well. And I love her. Like she's very, very interesting. It's an awesome episode. We get into celebrity stuff, plastic surgery, horror stories, great procedures to do, tips, tricks, everything. And I think you guys will really love the episode. Before we dive in, let's discuss this week's hot tip. It is the Mara Beauty Algae Enzyme Face Oil. Um, sorry, cleansing oil, not face oil, cleansing oil. And this cleansing oil is incredible. It takes off all your makeup, all of it so gently, so nicely. And the consistency is perfect to give yourself like a little face massage, which is what I do with it every single night. It is such a good product that we were hanging out with the founder, Allison McNamara, who is a friend of mine and who's been on the podcast before. And Nish was going on and on about how much he loved this cleansing oil. And she was nice enough to send him his own bottle. But if you don't believe me, take it from my husband, who is also a huge fan of the product. Everyone needs this facial cleansing oil. And also the great thing is with Mara Beauty is that it's a clean beauty brand. So you, you're not worried about like any random chemicals going into your skin. It's, it's, and it's a really beautiful product. So luxe. I can't recommend it enough. I have so many favorites from their entire line, but this one is truly a favorite. So go get this cleansing oil. And with that, let's dive in and welcome Ariel Laurie to the show. Okay. So the very first question I like to ask all my guests is what was your big dream when you were growing up? Okay. I'm already stumped <laughs> right <laughs> off the bat. <laughs> I can't really say that I had a big dream when I was growing up. I think that a lot of, a lot of why my story kind of played out the way it did was because I didn't really have a sense of what I wanted to do and mm -hmm. like a sense of purpose. And so I was a little bit aimless and I'm sure we'll get into it, but that's kind of how I ended up into drugs and alcohol, which is how I then subsequently got sober and got to where I am now. So when I look back on when I was younger, I don't, I don't think I really had a sense of that, which I think resulted in the rest of that stuff because I didn't have anything that I was working towards or like guiding me. But like overall, I was very interested in like fashion, working in fashion in some sense. I, I think it's really interesting that you say that because I've actually never heard that answer. But I think that what happened and with your whole story, which I would actually love to get into, mm -hmm. um, it, I don't know, it like all kind of makes sense. So 
tell me about your childhood. Like what really led you into like drugs and alcohol to begin with? Like how old were you? What drew you to that place? I want to hear all about it. So I had a very normal upbringing. And I think when people hear about somebody who has struggled with addiction or alcoholism, they assume that there was some kind of trauma and broken homes and um, these kind of markers that a lot of people who later struggle with substance abuse have in their lives. And I really didn't have any of that. I just kind of had this sense of, like I said, kind of aimlessness. I didn't Mm -hmm. really want to, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I felt like all of my friends kind of had this like manual to life and I didn't really have that. And I think I just kind of overall felt a little bit uncomfortable in my skin and a little bit separate from everybody else and a little bit aimless. So all of those things compounded together resulted in me seeking something outside of myself to change the way I felt inside and to to kind of self-soothe using external things. And it was like toys when I was younger. I mean, as far back as I can remember, I was constantly looking for things outside of myself and toys. And then it was boys and like dating. And finally, I found alcohol kind of later in high school, like maybe junior, senior year. Mm-hmm. And it was just like, on like from the first drink it was like yes I mean people say it sounds so cliche but as soon as I had that first drink I was like oh like I could just kind of exhale for the first time in my life and so from that point on that was like my single focus in life. Do you feel like certain people have like certain personalities that are more prone to getting like a like borderline obsessed slash addicted to things? Yes and no. I mean, just having now been sober almost eight years, I've seen all kinds of people who have dealt with substance abuse Mm -hmm. and and then gotten sober. Um, And there isn't really one archetype. However, I do think that I know for myself and for a lot of other sober people that I know, like we just kind of feel things on such a different magnitude (laughs) than other people. And I don't know if that would be considered a highly sensitive person. I am pretty sensitive. I run a little bit anxious. So I think those things kind of lent themselves to looking for something outside of myself to like self-regulate. And I think medically or like scientifically speaking, people who have alcoholism or addiction, they can trace it back to their childhood and not being able to self-regulate. So Interesting. Mm -hmm. Because I mean... I, I've i like known people close to me who have struggled with addiction. And what you're saying about the sensitivity piece is actually really, really, really true. And mm-hmm. I don't think um, externally people maybe realize that, but like it's always the deepest feelers mm-hmm. who almost are prone to it more than other people. Yeah. And I think that I was so ashamed. I didn't want to be like a quote unquote sensitive person. Yeah. So when I started drinking, I could kind of put up this facade and act like I was cool and unaffected. And that just continued the spiral even more so, you know, having to put up this front. And I know for a lot of other people that I know, at least in recovery, who were alcoholics or drug addicts, they felt the same way. Like they they were very sensitive. They were very affected by things and they felt like they couldn't be that. And so the drugs and alcohol helped to kind of cover that. Did you also run anxious in general? I did. Yes. I think I did run a little bit anxious, but I think that it was kind of a perfect storm because Mm -hmm. I was kind of feeling uncomfortable in my skin. I was feeling a little bit separate from other people. And then I got into this terrible relationship, terrible toxic relationship. And that was kind of what like set me over the edge because when that started unraveling, I really didn't have the tools or the coping mechanisms to be able to deal with that. And so that's when the drinking and and then drugs, of course, like really took off. And I think a lot of my anxiety started around that because it was a toxic relationship and I never really knew what to expect. And so I felt really like insecure and unsafe all the time. So I think that was really when the anxiety started. How long were you in this phase for? Like how long, like did you spiral? Like what was that whole time like? So I, if I started drinking around 16 or 17, I did it for 10 years. I had brief periods of sobriety where like I would get shipped off to rehab and I would be sober for the duration of that and then maybe for a little bit after. Mm-hmm. And then things inevitably would just fall apart and get worse. And like I always picked up where I left off. Like it never got better. It always only got worse. So... 
Yeah, it was kind of like in and out of treatments, in and out of detox, just so aimless. I could not keep a job. I couldn't keep any commitments. I couldn't keep relationships. And my life really just like really unraveled. You hear these stories a lot whereby people like go in and out of rehab. Why do you think that was for you? And like what changed the last time and you did become sober? Like was there like a tipping point? Yeah, there was a tipping point. And then there was also the component of me wanting it. So alcoholism, addiction, even some mental health issues are so frustrating because you really can't help the person until they want help themselves. Mm -hmm. And so my first rehab that I went to, I only went because I had gotten a DUI. I was like 19 or 20. Mm -hmm. And then the second rehab that I went to was for another reason, you know, like a bad relationship. And it was kind of, I was going to appease my family. And then the one after that, like, and it just kept going on and on like that, where I wasn't going because I really wanted help. I was going for somebody else Mm -hmm. or to kind of get the heat off me. And it wasn't until the last time when like, and I've talked about this, if anyone's heard me on any other podcast, I was having seizures nonstop. I was living here in West Hollywood in like a completely empty apartment because my boyfriend at the time had moved out and he took everything with him. And I was just like, "Mm, all right. And I just like drinking myself to death pretty much. I was in and out of the hospital and my family came to intervene on me and I had like a really long grand mal seizure, went back to the hospital and I was there for four or five days and then they shipped me off to rehab. And that time I was like, okay, there, there's nowhere to go from here. I think in the attempts or the trips that I went to rehab in the past, I still kind of had this idea that maybe I could control and manage my drinking, like, or maybe it was the drugs, you know? So one time I would be like, okay, well, I just need to stop taking Xanax and then I'll be okay. Or like, Mm -hmm. I really have to stop doing cocaine, (laughs) but it was never... I could never fully accept that I had to stop doing everything until my life got to the point where I was like, oh, I'm going to die. Like, I'm going to die. And even the doctors said, like, if my family hadn't come out when they did, I would have died. So I think that it was a combination of, like, absolutely being at rock bottom. And as a result of that, I was I had the desperation mm-hmm. and the willingness to, like, take other people's suggestions. So it was a combination of those two. Okay, I actually have a lot of follow-up questions okay. <laughs> to this piece. But did you go to, like, different kinds of rehabs? And what I mean by that is, like, you know, there's, like, rehabs which are, like, super lax, whereas, like, others are, like, just really just mm-hmm. basic and, like, you know, yeah. that kind of vibe. Yeah. So did you go to different ones and did you feel like the last one was maybe different than the others or was it really just like an internal thing only? I think it was really an internal thing. I did, you know, fortunately my family, they just wanted the best for me. They wanted me to live. Mm-hmm. They wanted me to be happy and have a life. And so they kept trying to help me mm-hmm. and, um, you know, they would pay for these nice rehabs. I did go to one or two that were not so nice. Like I went to a detox, which was absolutely gross and brutal. But the last rehab that I went to wasn't really different from any of the other ones that I had been to in terms of like programming or how nice it was. It was really just that I was ready. That was that was like the missing factor. I think any of those rehabs would have sufficed had I been ready and willing to change. Hi, I'm Claire Mazur. And I'm Erica Cerullo. We're the co-hosts of a podcast called A Thing or Two. It comes out every Monday and the basic premise is this. We share all the stuff we think more people should know about. So that's apps, recipes, books, the nationwide Haagen-Dazs vanilla bean shortage that nobody else was talking about. No one. No one. (laughs) Our preferred vacuum brands of which we have multiples and critical explorations of our unique approaches to paper towel usage. Listen, we think you're going to like it. A lot of people do. And who's to say you'll be any different? Listen and subscribe wherever it is you listen and subscribe to podcasts. What advice do you have for family members who have kind of struggled through this because of someone within their like close loved ones um, going through addiction? Like, do they have to hit rock bottom? Like, what's the right course of action here? Do you just like sit back and let them be like constantly help? Because there's so many different um, kind of theories here where like some people are like, oh, well, like if you are leading with love and compassion then you're enabling, right? Mm-hmm. And then it's like, okay, from a parent's perspective, it's like, but what do we do? Like our kid is suffering. And if you have this financial means, like they want to help. So 
in your experience, like what is the right course of action? It's so hard. It's like the million dollar question really. And I get asked it all the time and I've actually talked to my parents about it. And they Mm -hmm. said like, they were like, we knew that we were enabling you, but we didn't want you to die. Yeah. We were keeping a roof over your head because we didn't want you to be on the streets and die. Like, (laughs) you know, it's like a survival thing being on my end of it. I know that there was nothing that anybody could have done for me mm-hmm. along the way that would have made me ready had I not gone through what I went through and gotten to the place that I got to. So I think that my advice for people who are dealing with somebody in their lives who's struggling is to help themselves. Like go to Al-Anon or like some kind of program, support program, go to therapy if you can, something where you have an outlet And I think the groups are great because you can have other people who are going through the same thing, Mm -hmm. but you have to take care of yourself because if you're not taking care of yourself, you're never going to be of help to anybody else. And the hard thing is like, if you do try to intervene and help the person in your life who's struggling, like that's usually going to make you enemy number one. (laughs) Um, Because I know for me, like in my experience, if anybody tried to come between me and my drinking, like my drinking was my medicine. It was my survival. It was my coping. I could not live without it. So if anybody tried to come between me, they were like my enemy. (laughs) Um, So it's, it's so hard. And that's not to say that sometimes, you know, families intervene and they send their loved one to rehab and that loved one stays sober. It's happened for sure. And I actually used to work in behavioral health and I worked for a group where we would literally try to like bring up the rock bottom to meet the person. So like if somebody was drinking and they didn't want to go to treatment, for example, and they were married and had kids, we would say, well, they don't want to go. They're just not at rock bottom. So instead, like we need to find a way to manipulate this a little bit so that it is their rock bottom. So the family would meet with a therapist and get together and say like, we are leaving unless you're going to rehab, you know, and kind of create an ultimatum in a situation where they're like, oh, maybe this is bottom, like I'm about to lose my family. Mm -hmm. So there are cases like that, but it's so hard because it's like, especially with alcoholism or addiction, like nobody else can really diagnose somebody else with it. Like you have to diagnose yourself and then be willing and ready to change. What was your journey to sobriety even like? Because I know that you had this like epiphany where you were like, okay, well, I'm going to die. But like, Mm after that you leave rehab, what's life even like for you? Because you've been, you know, dependent on substances for what you said, 10 years. Mm -hmm. Like that's a long time. Yes. So I was in rehab. I went to rehab in Utah because it was where Lindsay Lohan went. (laughs) I think I've told this story before, but I was at Cedar sinai Like they're trying to stabilize me from having my seizures. And they're like, you can go here, here, or here for rehab. And I was Mm -hmm. like, the last one (laughs) because Lindsay Lohan, my North star, that's where she went. That says a lot about like mentally (laughs) where I was at the time. To be Um, fair, like Lindsay Lohan was hot shit. She was, yes. And this was back in, well, this was like 2014. So I think she had kind of crashed and burned by then. But I was like, oh, well, the Olsen, like one of the Olsons went there, like to me more, like this is all public information. And I like looked up in the hospital on like, people.com or whatever. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So funny. So I went to Utah. I was there for three months and then I was ready to leave. And I was like, I got to get back to LA, get back to my life, even Mm. though I had absolutely nothing. At that point, I had no car, no apartment, no job, no friends, nothing. I still had this sense of urgency, like, okay, I did the treatment thing. I'm going to go back. And luckily, a few people in my life had the wherewithal to say, no, we're going to pump the brakes. Like if you really mean it this time and you really want to get sober, you're going to go do more treatment (laughs) and continue to deal with the things that you were drinking over. Cause you know, the alcohol was a symptom Mm -hmm. of what was going on inside. And so I had to really deal with what was, what I was burying. So I did three months in Utah, three months at like an extended care place, all women in Orange County. And then I went to sober living for six months. Wow. And so this to, was a long process. Yeah. It was not just like a quick band-aid no, approach. No, no. And the sober living I went to was here in Santa Monica. And I got like a little kind of get well job, which is like a low stress, just, you know, something to get on your feet. So I was working on a boot- at a boutique on Montana in Santa Monica and like in therapy and doing groups and like really trying to build a foundation mm-hmm. in my life again. So yeah, overall, I was in a treatment environment for like a year. And 
when you know you're you're just getting your life back together you have a job in in this boutique mm-hmm. what about from there like how do you how did you come to realize like what it is you actually wanted to dedicate your life to like was it wellness like right off the get go like ha- like tell me about your path it's so funny i had no intention of creating this career that I have now. But of yeah. course, when I look back, I can see how everything worked out. So when I was working in that boutique, I had a blog called SoberChic.com. <laughs> I think it's probably still up if you want to see some really embarrassing pictures and read my <laughs> my ramblings. But back then, like Instagram was not what it is today. Yeah. And of course, I'm like, oh, I wish I had like been consistent with it back then with Sober Chic. (laughs) (laughs) But I wasn't. I know the name. I can't. So I was blogging and, um, and so, you know, I was taking pictures and writing while I was working at the boutique and I was working in behavioral health um, in the job that I mentioned before. And I was actually going to school as well because I thought that I wanted to dedicate my life to helping other alcoholics and addicts and their families. Mm -hmm. And I just got to a point where it was too much. I think living it and then also making that my vocation, Mm -hmm. it's a very taxing (laughs) kind of job. And I also had this other thing going on. And at that time I was doing BBG, which if people remember Bikini Body Guide, it was like an online workout thing. This is in 2016 and you were encouraged to make an Instagram account for accountability. And so I did that anonymously, which is why I have the name The Blonde Files. (laughs) That was my pseudonym, never thinking that it would turn into what it is now. And so I had the Instagram account on the side and I was just posting like what I was eating and my workouts. And I found that I loved having that outlet and connecting with people and just sharing my life and sharing about sobriety and sharing about the good things and the bad things. And it just kind of took off from there. And I got to a point where I was able to do it full time. And that's kind of the short version of how I got here. So you've always been like a very transparent person online, like right from the get go, because you were soberchic.com. <laughs> so I mean, that's like, no, like seriously, yeah. because like I, I see your current content and what's like drawn me to you. And I think like this is really like your superpower as like Mm -hmm. a content creator is that transparency with like everything you do. You Mm -hmm. know what I mean? Yeah. So it was like always like in your roots, I guess. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's funny. I was at my parents' house recently and I was like going through boxes in the basement and I saw like an old composition book from when I was younger and I had cutouts from all these different magazines and I was writing things and I was like, I was kind of doing this way back then, you know, and like, it's just, I think everybody, not everybody, I think a lot of people can look back on their lives and just see how, where they are now has kind of been like in motion their whole lives. And that was one of those moments for me. And even with like sober chic, I was like, oh, even when I was not planning on doing this, I was blogging and just not intending it for it to be a career. And I think if anything, it probably worked out better for me because I, um, it just happened really organically. Mm -hmm. And it happened, like you said, through just sharing everything really openly and trying to be vulnerable and authentic. And I think that's what people connect to online, especially nowadays when everything is like so perfection like glazed over yeah for (laughs) sure so I think it's really interesting that you what age did you get sober like late 20s yeah late 20s okay so late 20s I know that a lot of people feel like if they don't have their purpose or if they're starting their career over like at a later later age in life they feel like oh like fuck it's too late or Mm -hmm. like oh you know I really messed up what advice do you have for people when they're feeling like that? It's never too late. I mean, it is never too late. I feel like every year I am kind of evolving in this career and every year I feel like fresh in a new way and like I'm starting something new. And yeah, I mean, I I got sober in my late 20s with absolutely nothing and it took years for me to get to where I am and I feel like I'm just getting started and it's hard sometimes not to feel that way now, like, especially when you see your peers, like we're so inundated with what everybody else is doing online that we feel like we have to be there too. But I think, yeah, I think it's, it's just so important to know that it's never too late. I mean, you see the cliche things like, you know, Oprah didn't get a show till she was however old, like, and it sounds cliche, but it's so true. And I saw something that was like, never compare yourself because like, 
the person who makes CEO at 25, like might not make it to 30. Like it's very morbid, but, and the person who like changes their careers at 50, I mean, you can't compare yourself to other people because you just have no idea what your trajectory is going to be. It's so true. And I think like looking at life just from the lens of a career, it's like, it's very like narrow Mm -hmm. because fact of the matter is there's like a lot of facets in life. And I, I mean, I have friends who excel in one facet, whereas like they may not be the strongest with career, but maybe their relationships are really robust and beautiful, right? And I think like having the grace to recognize that like career is one facet and that people get there. It's just sometimes it takes a little longer. And I think any age is fine. You know what I mean? Like it's never too late to like find the thing you love or like whatever that is, you know? Yeah. And that'll change. And like, that's one of the nice things about getting older is that you learn new things about yourself and like you develop new passions and interests. And, um, I'm kind of like a nerd about this stuff, but with life expectancy, like increasing, I mean, what, what we're supposed to know what we're going to do at 21 and do that for the next 90 years. I mean, it's like not realistic at all. So I think it's really changing the landscape of everything from relationships to careers, um, education, all of that. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. Honestly, like I, switched careers many times in my 20s. And I feel like that's what you're supposed to do. You know, like it took me a while to land on array and like everything led me to this point. So Mm -hmm. I think, yeah, it's it's really important to recognize that that's Mm -hmm. what life is for. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So tell me about the journey from BBG to Blonde Files. Like how was that transition and how did you become, because like now you're like wellness as opposed to fitness. I feel Mm. like they're two different things. And you started as fitness. What brought you into wellness? I kind of crashed and burned with fitness as well. Like I always say that I'm a rock bottom person and I kind of hit a rock bottom with that too. Cause I was like, BBG is the only way, like never miss a Monday and like counting macros and running my body into the ground. I look at pictures now and right around the time that I hit that bottom, I was like a rail. I did not look healthy at all, but I remember when I would look at myself in the mirror, I would just see things that I needed to change. And I'd be like, okay, well, if I cut my carbs by like five more percent and it was like not sustainable and my body crashed and burned. And so for like a year, I really couldn't do much. I couldn't work out. I would just go for walks and I had to change my concept of what wellness meant to me Mm -hmm. because up until that point, like it was abs, fitness, and like diet. (laughs) That was it. Um, And so when I had to slow down, I kind of learned the beauty of that. And I expanded what my wellness practice looked like. I got into meditation, spirituality, and just like how to wear wellness loosely instead Mm -hmm. of having it be this rigid thing. And, you know, I just was kind of sharing about that as I did with everything else. And that was kind of how I made that transition from like BBG into a more general kind of wellness. Did you share the fact that you were struggling with like finding balance? Like, is Mm -hmm. that something you shared along the way as well? Yeah. I mean, I was all about that lifestyle, like the very not balanced lifestyle. And after I came out of that and I had a little bit of perspective, I did share about how I learned how to be a little more intuitive with my body and the benefits that I saw from that. And like, I've been very vocal about the fact that like I have promoted some like really not healthy things. Sorry, mm-hmm. I have like a dog fur on my face. <laughs> That's why I keep scratching it. I'm like, where is this thing? What was I saying? At the time, I just didn't know. Like, I just didn't know what I didn't know. And um, now I completely lost my train of thought. No, I, but we were talking about balance. But yeah. I think like what oh, you're yeah. saying is actually like very important because I think owning up to like just knowing more than Mm -hmm. you did yesterday and like even contradicting what you said yesterday like you learn more and it's it's okay to admit that like okay no I was I was wrong and like Mm -hmm. this is why I think I was wrong because now I know more like it's Mm -hmm. just like evolution I think some of the most attractive qualities in people are humility fallibility I love to see people make mistakes and own up to their mistakes and learn from them and share about them. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't want to see like perfection and people who claim to have it all figured out. And yeah, so I was, you know, there have been plenty of times where I've been like that thing that I said, not, (laughs) not that that 
not the vibe anymore. <laughs> not the vibe anymore. I had to go through my Instagram. I had so many before and after pictures where I was like comparing myself like skinny to skinnier or like less toned to like very toned, but I've always been petite. And I had to go through and like archive and delete everything. So I was like, this is not what I want to promote, promote yeah. anymore. That's another story though, because like the algorithm loves that shit. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's really unfortunate, but it's true. Yeah. When you were going through this, this time where like you kind of started to have to slow down and I guess, did you see your body change? I'm guessing you did. Cause you went from like rail thin to just mm-hmm. like n- not rail thin. Mm-hmm. What was that time like for you? Like, was it like, was it hard on you? I'm trying to remember. It feels like it was such a long time ago. There was fear initially. And I know that this is something that a lot of people who follow me have struggled with, especially with the macros or any kind of dieting. There's this fear that like, if you stop doing it, your body is going to like catch up to you Mm -hmm. and something terrible is going to happen. And I've had experts on my podcast who have talked about what that does. And like, you're really kind of breaking this trust that you have with yourself. You're saying, I don't trust my body if I don't do X, Y, and Z. And that can be really insidious, you know, that can really affect you in ways that you may not. It's like you versus your body as opposed to one unit. totally. And you're like, yeah. And you're like, I don't trust you. Mm -hmm. And like, what does that do to your, your psyche and your, your value of yourself and your self-confidence, self-esteem, all of that, the counting the macros and the dieting thing, that was very hard for me to unravel. Mm -hmm. And I kind of just did it like one meal at a time where I was like, I'm not going to count breakfast, but I'll count like lunch and dinner. And then I would do, okay, I'm going to not do breakfast and lunch. And I think I just saw, I mean, A, I started to feel better because I like could not function. I was nauseous, exhausted all the time. My hormones were freaking disaster, no period, you know, like crazy mood swings, irritability. All I thought about was what I was eating, when I was eating it, when I was working out, all of that. It was not a life. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I think that I started to feel better mentally. I started to feel better physically. I saw that like, okay, maybe my body is going to change shape a little bit, but like at the same time, I can enjoy my life so much more. And I remember somebody said to me, maybe the way your body is meant to look when it's healthy and the way you think your body is meant to look aren't the same thing. And I was like, oh. That's actually profound. Yeah. I had never thought about that before. I think that we are bombarded with so many images and like, Mm -hmm. I don't know, like external things about like what people should look like. And you know, before it was like one type, but now it's like different variations, if that Mm -hmm. makes sense, right? Like if you're curvy, like this is your optimal, but like, Mm -hmm. it's true. Like it it may not look like that. And frankly speaking, like this can get us into like the plastic surgery Mm -hmm. piece because (laughs) you've been really open with that, but not everyone in the media has. Yeah. (laughs) Well, and like a picture doesn't tell the entire story. Totally. Like if somebody saw a picture of me when I was at my thinnest of, you know, me in a bikini at the beach or whatever, like they would probably think one thing and they wouldn't know what was going on beneath that and Mm -hmm. know like how miserable and how uncomfortable I was. And, you know, unfortunately we compare our insides with other people's outsides. So we compare how we feel about ourselves or our lives or whatever to what we see in someone else's exterior. And that's like not a fair comparison at all to make. And yes, I mean, today it's like with social media and plastic surgery and the lack of lack of disclosure yeah. around it. Yes, I can get into this whole debate, how I feel about that, but it's creating a really unhealthy space, I think. I agree. So yeah, let's get into it because <laughs> this is actually, Ariel, like I have respected you so much because of how much light you've shed on this area, how vocal you are about it. And I mean, you're partially in this world because of your husband. When did you start to get interested and when, like what really drove you to share this whole thing about plastic surgery? So I got a nose job in 2017 and that was my first foray into it. I mean, I had gotten Botox when I got sober and I've shared about this too. So I probably sound like a broken record, but I remember seeing a picture, I took a selfie with my boyfriend at the time and I was maybe a year sober and I was like, who is this person? (laughs) Like I looked just really like, like, I don't know the word that I'm looking for. I looked pretty haggard. I mean, years of like- Substances take it out of you. Like that's- Substances, a pack a day, baking myself in the sun, 
Ooh. tanning beds twice a day. What? No sleep. I don't think I, I slept in my makeup like for 10 years. I would stay up for two, three days at a time, you know, just a freaking disaster. Yes. So, and I looked at, luckily, like, thank God for Botox, lasers, X, Y, and Z. <laughs> it's like able to erase a lot of the damage. But Anyway, the nose thing was something that I had wanted to do since I was younger. Mm-hmm. And now I look back on my old nose and I'm like, oh, it was cute. Like there was nothing, but it was just one of those things that yeah, I was insecure you about. Yeah. And I was at the point where, you know, I could do it. And that was my first experience with it. And I think I just felt like with everything else, I want to share this with people. Maybe somebody is going to do this and they want to know how to prepare for it or what, what the recovery is like, what to look for in a doctor. Like, I think I just have always been an open book in sobriety because I just want to use my experiences to benefit other people. Mm-hmm. Um, not that talking about surgery is some great service that I'm doing for the world. No, but, but you I know think- what? It, it really is because mm-hmm. I feel like before this information was available, you never knew what to do. People just mm-hmm. did not know what to do. And so I think like it's actually, it is great service. Like I will <laughs> interrupt you. you there and tell you that it is. <laughs> Thank you. I mean, now I feel like, especially with like you see pictures of like a Bella Hadid or a Kendall all over Instagram, like before and after, or you'll see a picture, like I see accounts that say, oh, it looks like they did X, Y, and Z. And then you see hundreds of comments under it saying, no, she just had puberty. And I'm like, that is not... I mean, I just can't imagine being younger, being a teenager, looking up to these women and having this kind of unrealistic beauty standard and then having them lie about it. Like that just doesn't sit well, right with me. What, like, it's a, like that's what leads to dysmorphia in so yeah. many people, right? Because you see these images and like these women are beautiful, mm-hmm. but like they've had work done. They have professional help. And like, without any disclosure, as you're saying, Mm -hmm. I'm totally with you. Like, I'm all on board. But like, I think that you can't deny it. Like, at Mm -hmm. least just say nothing. That's my stance. Like, everybody is entitled to privacy. And I'm not saying that any of them have to come out and say, yes, I did have this, that, and the other thing. And my doctor is so-and-so. Like, that. that's not what I'm advocating for here. I just think maybe like a happy medium or like a middle ground is saying, I have a lot of help, you know, something like that, or, or, or don't say anything at all. I remember when a certain celebrity came out with a skincare line and was like, well, I just put olive oil on my face. And I'm like, I could rub all the olive oil in the world. I am half your age. Mm -hmm. I, can never look like that. Mm-hmm. And I just don't have the professional help. And yeah. there's no skincare line in the world that'll do that for me. It's like they say, follow the money. Where's the olive oil money going? <laughs> but yes. And then there's also like the editing, you know, speaking of that person, um, she looks amazing, but also what she's presenting to the world on social media is not like the reality of the situation. Yeah. I mean, the whole thing, it's like, it's a lot of smoke and mirrors. Mm-hmm. And I think like, you know, it's really important for accounts like yours to exist because Mm -hmm. I think you showing that like, okay, well, like you can look a certain way, but Mm -hmm. like this is the kind of help you need to look a certain way, you know, at least it's out there and it's like open. And it's, I know that myself and probably so many others appreciate it. So, I mean, I think it's awesome. Thank you. I mean, the other thing is that like, I spent so much unnecessary money kind of chasing these these less invasive procedures like threads, for example, Mm -hmm. um, that are advertised as like a less invasive way of getting this like major result. And like the fox eye thing, right? Yeah. Yeah. Like that's not what I did. I did it in my cheeks. But yes, they're advertised for fox eyes. Um, You know, very minimal result, really high likelihood of um, complications. Yeah. Threads. No one, the celebrities, they're not doing threads. What what are they doing? (laughs) Endoscopic brow lift for sure, which I've had done. Yeah which are, you know, tiny incisions in your hairline. And yeah. then they go in with an endoscope and detach your forehead, lift it up, put the brows in position, and you have no scars. Um, threads, first of all, if you put them here in the temple area where you do the fox eye, that skin there is so thin yeah. that you're probably going to see it. It looks, you know, whatever the word, snatched for mm-hmm. like 
maybe a few days or a week, and mm-hmm. then the brow falls back into position. And any honest practitioner who does threads will say that it, it doesn't lift the brow. It can elongate it a little bit, like here. Yeah. But you're going to have to do it every month, every two months. And it's so painful. Oh, my so God. So much trauma to go through. And then you have to recover. And you're never going to get a consistent result. So, you know, I've had And you people, did it on your cheek? Why on your cheek? I did well, it on my cheeks. I don't know. They, who, The people that I went to said to do it. They put two threads in here and yeah. then they like lifted this area uh-huh. but <laughs> I have pictures of it really I just looked like very cheeky up here yeah kind of like um Star Wars guy <laughs> <laughs> or Star Trek Star Trek the Klingon thing it was so painful so painful and I've had Stop. multiple surgeries that I've recovered from that were like nothing compared to this because you're awake and they're like jamming a thread through your skin like a thick suture down into your cheek and then they're hooking it and then suspending it and I had to go to this event with Chuck. By the way, I don't think I told him that I did. I don't know how. Stop. He, <laughs> I don't Wait, know how. He went he, and got threads done and yes, did not And tell I came him. back and I was like moon face, like so swollen, couldn't smile. Like I remember I had to podcast. This is two and a half, two. Yeah. Like right when I started my podcast and I had to talk like this. And if I laughed, I was like, ha ha. <laughs> I could not smile because they were like they were so painful and I went to this event with Chuck and I had to like schmooze why that day like of all days when you had an event oh no 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 no. I went to the event like a week later thinking like okay it would be okay and I had to like schmooze and shake hands and one of them popped out and it was like poking (laughs) poking out of my cheek and I'm like frantically texting the girl I'm like can I come you can like pop it back in I mean it's just the worst the worst Wait, and then what happened? What was recovery like? Did it look good when you recovered? No, 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 no. Oh so God. I looked, I was very swollen for a couple of weeks. And at some point, I think I liked the swelling maybe after like a week because I was swollen where they put them in. So like up at the top of my cheek. But then after the swelling went away, I really had no result. I mean, doctors do them. And I'm obviously I'm not a doctor. So I'm not here to say like they are mm-hmm. universally terrible. I think there are times where if somebody like doesn't want to get a facelift and they want to like get a little bit of a lift maybe around their jaw or their cheeks or whatever, there are very reputable doctors like Dr. Diamond um, in Beverly Hills who I know he does threads sometimes, but like you have to manage expectations. And I think the most insidious thing that I see on Instagram are med spas posting a picture of Bella Hadid and saying, come get Bella Fox eyes. And they use her image and so people associate that with threads and I mean they have done it like they have succeeded in fooling people into thinking that this is what they do and it's not that is I mean I thought that I was Mm -mm. like well like this is this is done through threads no no. this is wild okay well like this should be a PSA for everyone (laughs) maybe if you want fox eyes Speak to someone and really get an opinion on how to get it. Yeah. I mean, there are things like Botox, which, you know, Botox can change things within like a couple millimeters Mm -hmm. at best. But if you really want to have a lift more than that, or if you want to change the position of the tail or anything, Mm -hmm. um, surgery is probably the most viable option. Let's see. This is why we need people (laughs) like you. Okay. And it's easy. I mean, not to like convince people, but Mm -hmm. people think, oh, like, these, you know, whoever, young celebrities, they would never get surgery. Like it's a week long recovery and that's it. And, and you like don't nothing. have a scar and yeah. like it is surgery. So it's a big deal. I'm not trying to promote it. But um, when people have the the money and the access to the best doctors in the world and like, they can go hide out for a week. Time. Yeah. It's yeah. Like nothing. It's yeah. actually nothing. And not have to go get like threads, like get their face sewn. Yeah. <laughs> every... that's, that's fucking wild. Yeah. Best and worst experience with plastic surgery like your favorite and worst is a threads it can't be worse than threads yeah threads are for sure the worst best in terms of like my favorite yeah your favorite results yeah it's hard to say there have been a few things that I felt like have made a big difference the brow lift really did make a big difference for me only because I had like very hooded eyes before you can't tell right now because I'm on like team no sleep right now but (laughs) um but it did really open my eyes up I think that that's a good option for people and then I did fat transfer this past year which was like a huge difference for me as well explain what this is so fat transfer they take fat from one part of your body and then they put it into a different part of your body so Mm -hmm. I had a little bit of fat taken from my stomach Mm -hmm. just like a syringe full basically and 
they, I don't know the medical term for it, but essentially like spin it down into kind of like a liquid and Mm -hmm. then they inject it with a syringe into your face. Um, So they did under my eyes, my cheeks and my temples. And that is a good option for some people. Again, like I'm not... (laughs) Yeah, professional. Of course. But I wanted to move away from doing filler. Yeah. And fat transfer is kind of a more permanent option. Oh, interesting. And more natural, obviously, because you're using your own tissue. Yeah. And it just helps with volume loss. Like this past year, I started noticing a lot of volume loss. It happens in our 30s. Um, I think somebody, I think a doctor that I had on my show said like after the age of 32, that's when you start Oh, I just turned 30. This is not... You look amazing. Thank you. 32 for me, like 32 was good. 33, like mid 30s. Mm-hmm. I was like, all right, this is starting so, to... That's so interesting. Okay, mm-hmm. cool. And then what's the third? Lip lift. Love a lip lift. So what? Explain. <laughs> so a lip lift is when they make an incision at the base of your nose, mm-hmm. like underneath your nostrils right here. Mm-hmm. And they basically shorten the philtrum, which is the space, like the skin from the top of your lip to the bottom of your nose. Mm -hmm. I had a very long philtrum, very straight across upper lip. And I would put so much filler in it because I just wanted to have a little bit of that like poutier shape and it didn't work. It just was like projecting outwards. I had the Marge Simpson thing going on. It was like heavy and weighed down. It looked terrible not the vibe. So the lip lift, um, really helps more with shape. It doesn't help with volume as much. They can roll it out a little bit, but I always, anytime I talk about this, I always need to just make the disclaimer that like you have to go to the best because you are putting a scar in the middle of your face. Like Mm -hmm. it doesn't matter who you go to. If you go to the best of the best of the best, which I did shout out Dr. Mascaro in Florida. He's known as like being the lip lift guy. Even with him, like you're still going to have a pencil thin line because it's a high movement area Mm -hmm. and there's just no way to do it without absolutely any scar. Um, Different skin types obviously scar differently than than others, but I have seen some crazy bad scars. And like if you're, I mean, there are a lot of doctors who are doing them now because it's trendy who aren't like necessarily qualified to do it. And it can be devastating to have that kind of scar on your face. I mean, it's the case for everything, right? Like I was chatting with Dr. Lara Devkin mm-hmm. and she was saying that like, you know, you sometimes you walk around and you see like some like really botched, mm-hmm. even like filler slash Botox work. And it's yeah. because people just go to someone because it's trendy and everyone claims that they're a good injector. But like you yeah. actually have to be really careful when it comes to your face, you know? Yeah. It's crazy nowadays. Like, I mean just with all the med spas popping up and injectors who like, you don't have to have that much experience to be an injector. So you really have to do your due diligence and, you know, see if you can talk to people who have gone to whatever provider you're thinking about going to and make sure you see a lot of before and afters. Um, But even those can be doctored nowadays. So it can be Really tough. tough. Yeah. So if someone is looking to go get even just like, let's, let's start with Botox. That's probably the entryway for a lot mm-hmm. of people. What is your, what was your process for finding the right person? Like, do you go to a doctor and have them inject you versus a nurse practitioner within a clinic? Like, what are your tips? When I first did Botox, I didn't actually, it wasn't even my idea. I went to get like a skin check for yeah. skin cancer. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I went to a dermatologist, like some old guy at Cedar sinai in Beverly Hills. And he was like, do you think you want to get, do you want me to do some Botox on you? And I was like, huh? Like did not even really know what it was like on my forehead because I yeah. had such deep lines. And so he was a, an MD dermatologist. I was like, okay, this guy probably knows what he's doing. Yeah. And, and he did. Um, and then since then, I've always gone to somebody at a plastic surgeon's office, either a dermatologist or a plastic surgeon or a nurse practitioner at a plastic surgeon. That's always been my my go-to because okay. I feel like I actually ha- I did go to a med spa once for lip filler and it was like a freaking disaster and it's scary I mean people just think like the worst thing that can happen is that they'll have a bad outcome that they don't like but that's not the worst thing that can happen I mean it's low probability but like you can go blind from getting filler in certain areas you can get you know tissue necrosis where it dies like the tissue dies mm-hmm. and like comes off I mean it can be 
really it's not scary. a joke it's no. not a joke and like i think because it's so commonplace like people don't mm-hmm. realize but like this is something foreign going into your body yes. and like you have nerves all over your face yeah. like tissue is sensitive yeah. like let's be really fucking careful i know i saw lily galici somebody sent to me i don't really know who she, i think she was on a show on bravo mm-hmm. but she had filler put in her nasolabial fold mm-hmm. and she had like an occlusion and she, they thought that she was going to get necrosis which is when it dies and they were able to get her in to see somebody and they could put the dissolver but um holy crap it's scary and that's a reason to like never have like a Botox party or a filler party or like do it if someone's coming to your hotel like no you need to make sure that they have everything that they need in case something does go wrong because you have such a small window of time to reverse things so that's another tip yeah that's a really (laughs) good tip okay if you could leave our audience with one wellness tip before we wrap what would it be oh my god (laughs) like your favorite the thing you're really into can be anything Um, even a book I think probably my favorite thing to do for wellness is to like slow down and be still. Even if it's just for a minute a day, I think that we're all used to this super fast paced, always being distracted. You can be alone and never be alone because of social media. And like, I think we all more and more are attached to our phones, devices, you know, and it's so hard for us to like sit with ourselves. And I think if we don't ever take that time, it's so hard to have any kind of clarity when it comes to like what's going on in our life and you know where we want to go and all of that so I think just carving out that time whether it's like walking Mm -hmm. like a walking meditation it doesn't have to be formal meditation but just something where you're slowing down I think that like it's so overlooked nowadays yeah love that tell everyone where they can find you everybody can find me at Ariel Laurie on Instagram and from there they can find my podcast the blonde files podcast and my website theblondefiles.com and tiktok and all of that good stuff and you have a latte right now I do we're latte buddies right now yeah you have your <laughs> at Erewhon yeah I'm gonna try to get yours today yes I do have a latte at Erewhon through the end of the year as well amazing thank you Ariel thank you Thank you so much for listening. If you loved the episode and feel like it brought you value, don't forget to rate the show and leave a review. It takes five seconds and really helps the show grow so I can keep bringing on awesome guests. If you want to follow me behind the scenes, you can find me on Instagram at SifHider. And don't forget to hit subscribe so you don't miss a thing. I drop new episodes every Tuesday, so come hang with me and shoot the shit with some really smart people, learn and unlearn, and have a lot of fun. See you next week.